Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. We're not going to mess around today. We're going to get right into it and bring in Tanner. Hello, hello. How's it going? Not too bad. Happy to be here. Great. Did you have an announcement for the crew, the crew members, those who want to be crew members? I do. Uh, I was just going to throw this in here since we're towards the beginning of a new season and uh, just throwing in that we do have a Patreon for the show. That's at what is that at? Patreon.com slash beyond the breakers. I think so. Something like that. <laughs> Patreon.com slash beyond the breakers. Head over there uh, if you want a little bit more of the show every month. Uh, if you're at the $3 level as an able C person, you get one bonus episode a month. And at the $5 tier, the second mate tier, you get more than one. That might just be one extra. It might be two extra. Whatever we happen to, to, to put out in a given month. Uh, and that includes stuff like the book club episodes we've been doing. We mm-hmm. have covered A High Wind in Jamaica and The Sea Wolf so far on there. Yep. And then that also includes your series on what's the show called? Below Decks. Below Deck. Yeah. Uh, Below Darcy Deck. and myself watch and react to that one. And uh, hopefully we'll have another one of those soon. Yes, and so schedule announcement, and this is for everyone, uh, including existing patrons. Schedule-wise with those, um, the sort of extra bonus stuff, we're going to be alternating uh, month by month with those. So January, we put out the episode for A High Wind in Jamaica, the book club. In February, Taylor and Darcy will put out one of their Below Deck episodes, and then we'll be back to the book club for March. We'll also be announcing our next reading choice for the book club so you can get that read in time to listen along with us in March. That's awesome. I kind of like that new pattern there for the extra extra stuff. Well, with all the boring stuff out of the way, what have you been up to media wise? So I finally started reading Gravity's Rainbow. Okay. I've never read a Thomas Pynchon book before. What is it? They're the kind of books that Katie really likes. Okay. Um, so it's it's quite uh, dense and literary. It's been compared to like James Joyce, Ulysses, uh, things like that. On the surface, it sounds just kind of like your your kind of typical actiony spy war type book. It's about the V two rocket and kind of uh, a secret plan to, I think, either steal or prevent the launch of a V two rocket. I just Googled it, and the first video that comes up is How to Read Gravity's Rainbow, and it's an hour long. It's dense, like it takes some effort to read. I mean, that's just Thomas Pynchon's style. Mm-hmm. That's why I've never read one of his before, because I, I, I don't have time for that. But I decided I want to read one. I like the movie of Inherent Vice. That was good. Nice. I haven't seen I don't. I don't know that I was aware of that name until just now, so I'll have to look into that. I'm enjoying it so far. It's, it's, it's very funny. There's a lot of very funny parts in it. It's dense, but what I'm doing is, with books like this, especially very long fiction, where I know I will 
have spurts of enjoyment and boredom with it. Mm-hmm. I have set myself out. I'm, I'm reading 30 pages of it a day, which is okay. a totally doable amount of reading, even even in a book that you're not totally enjoying, maybe. And that way I'll still finish it in less than a month. That's my plan for nice. reading it. And it's worked so far. I've been enjoying it. Cool. How about you? Oh, let's see here. Took the kids to Disney on Ice this weekend. It's a good show. The mouse knows how to put on a show. However, an arena full of children is really annoying. Mm, Yeah. Like, you know, when you go to a sporting event and maybe like a quarter of the people there are children, like it was like 70%. And like, I realize I'm at a Disney show, but like just there's no aisle ways to walk in because there's just kids everywhere. I don't know. It was a pain. And also... I'm not one of those people that normally complains about food and drink prices at these kind of things. Cause like I get it right. Like it's going to be expensive. This was robbery. I believe we paid $45 for three popcorns. Can you buy beer at Disney on ice? I sure did. I bought a Stella $14. Oof. <laughs> Oof. $14. It was a big one to be fair. It was, it was a big one, but uh, still a lot for a Stella. Did feel a little weird carrying that around, but you could just see the look on all the other dads' faces, all kind of looking at each other like, yep. Mm-hmm. They should have, and I don't know, knowing Disney, they probably do, have a screening of Disney on Ice that's exclusively for Disney adults. So God, they probably do. You don't have to deal with the kids at all. Those tickets would probably sell. You can just drink your beer with the other adults and watch <laughs> Disney on Ice. And learn important lessons from Moana. Oh, yeah, I guess it would all be up to because I know I think we went to Disney on Ice or something when I was. like. Oh, yeah, really, there's like really multiple little. shows that tour now and stuff. Uh, this was there was a lot of the modern ones. Moana, Frozen, of course, that kind of thing. Coco. Is it like the Blue Man Group where there's multiple sets of the same? I believe people? so. I believe that is not the actual Goofy on the ice. Multiple Moanas, the Moana. <laughs> uh, what else? Um, I've been reading another book, uh, Empire of the Summer Moon. Quinna Parker and the Rise and Fall of the Comanches by S.C. Gwynn. Quinna Parker is really interesting, and that's a book I've almost picked up so many times. I would highly, I'm the same way, and like I would highly encourage anyone that's almost picked it up to go ahead and do it. It's written, I like the way that it's written. He does pretty good narrative fiction. It's really interesting looking at how like one group of Native Americans in particular experienced westward expansion. Because it's very different than how other groups experienced it. So it is kind of cool. Instead of seeing a generalized overview of seeing very specifically, these are the things that happened. Mm-hmm. The book does do a lot to avoid tropes and stereotypes. They definitely avoid like the noble savage trope that's so easy to fall into with that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty frank and brutal about how life was in the time and place that the Comanche existed. There's a lot of stories where there are no good guys. It's uh, it's very interesting uh, learning about the interactions that they had with Mexico and Spain, the United States, Texas as an independent state. It's very, very interesting seeing how all that's come about. And that we really haven't even gotten to the part in the book yet where they talk about Quinna Parker. Like it's a lot of it's just been the foundation of that. But I would highly encourage anyone that's interested to pick that up. Aside from that, I have been working on this podcast episode. Today, we are going to talk about the USS Underwriter. That name may not be familiar because it's honestly not that important in the grand scheme of the Civil War, but it is part of a larger thing that we've already talked about before, and that is the blockade of the Confederacy. It's a very strange name for a vessel. 
Yeah, it is. Um, I th- I have a theory as to why it stayed that way, at least, once the Navy bought it. And it's probably because they didn't care because they bought it in 1861. But I don't know. What, yeah, I don't know why it was originally named that. So the Underwriter was a wooden-hulled sidewheel steamer built in 1852 in Brooklyn, New York. 175 feet long with a 23-foot beam and an 8-foot draft. She was originally built for commercial purposes. If the records of her merchant life exist, I can't find them. Hmm. Uh, it's safe to say it was probably relatively mundane, which is kind of what you want from your merchant vessel. No news is good news, right? <laughs> you don't want to be featured on this podcast. Right. As someone told us on Blue Sky today. I totally forgot about Blue Sky. Uh, yeah. Oh, I probably have so many codes built up now. I think there's like eight. Let us know if you want one. <laughs> this would change with a little help from our friends in South Carolina in April of 1861. So for those of you less familiar with the Civil War, this is when Confederate forces under Pierre G.T. Beauregard fired on and eventually captured Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. Do you remember what the G and the T stand for? It's Gustave and Touton, I think. Uh-huh. That is... I believe he actually went by Gustave. Of course he did. I, I don't think people called him Pierre. But, like, obviously we do in posterity, but I, right. I think he, he went by one of his other names. But Interesting. I'm not, I'm not totally sure about that. Also, wanted to add, if you're interested in hearing a little bit more about Beauregard, Nick and I talked about him quite a bit especially near the end of the Hunley episodes, that two part that we did where Nick took us through the history of the Hunley and mm-hmm. other Confederate attempts at submarines. <laughs> and at the end of that, because it's in the defense of Charleston Harbor, Beauregard plays a role in that story. So as we previously discussed in bonus episodes and prior stories, one of the key union objectives was to establish a blockade of Confederate ports. Reading from a letter written by General Winfield Scott to General George McClellan on May 3rd, 1861. We propose a powerful movement down the Mississippi to the ocean, with a cordon of posts at proper points. The object being to clear out and keep open this great line of communication in connection with the strict blockade of the seaboard, so as to envelop the insurgent states and bring them to terms with less bloodshed than by any other plan. So if you want to hear us talk more about the Union blockade of Confederate ports, listen to episode 87, which is about the Metropolis. And actually, the underwriter worked with the Metropolis when she was known as the USS Stars and Stripes uh, during some of the blockade operations off of Hatteras Inlet in September of 1861. So it's always cool when uh, one of our past stars makes an appearance. Uh, The bonus episode, Scott's Pretty Good Snake. We since released that one for free. There's quite a in-detail discussion on that episode. And episode 112 about the CSS Alabama. A significant percentage of our episodes have talked about the Union blockade in some capacity. It is fertile ground. I think even in our Lusitania episodes, we talked about it because we were talking about the British blockade and Mm -hmm. we were making comparisons. And I think we talked about it in the I'm Alone and probably in what was the one we just did about Israel? The one about the Mavi Marmara. Yeah. So the two part one. This has featured pretty heavily in a lot of our work. Uh, So this meant that the U.S. Navy needed to quickly bulk up its fleet. 
One way of doing this is to purchase merchant vessels and arm them as blockade ships. That's exactly what happens to the Underwriter. She was purchased on August 23rd, 1861, and Lieutenant James M. Pritchard was put in command. She was initially assigned to the Potomac Flotilla and reported to Aquia Creek, Virginia, before being sent to Washington Navy Yard on August 28th, where she underwent extensive repair and refitting for a new role. Obviously, you, know, you just bought a merchant ship. There's going to be a little work involved in turning a merchant ship into a warship. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's during this time that she's being refitted that the vessel is assigned to the North Atlantic Blocking Squadron. So basically, this is when she gets put into the blockade. The NABs. Uh, she went to part Washington for Hampton Roads, Virginia on August 3rd and eventually joined the blockading squadron off of Hatteras Inlet on October 9th, 1861. So this is actually when she would be operating with the Stars and Stripes, a.k.a. the Metropolis. She would maintain that station until November 14th, when along with the General Putnam and the Ceres left Hatteras Inlet and made their way south to Ocracoke Inlet. There they would scuttle three hulks filled with stones. So obviously, your goal is to block off that harbor and make it not usable. Or that inlet, sorry. So obviously this would leave the inlet unusable, and if they can't use it, they can't smuggle, which is good. While stationed at Ocracoke Inlet, the underwriter participated in Union operations to capture Confederate facilities on February 7th and 8th, 1862. She would also participate in the capture of Elizabeth City, North Carolina, on February 10th, 1862. So they're pretty busy. And it's interesting, like, this doesn't get talked about a whole lot, this campaign, I don't think, in the broader study of the Civil War, but a lot of these ports in North Carolina get taken really early. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence of that, they don't suffer nearly as much right? as, you know, the more interior areas of the Confederacy, places like Washington, North Carolina. Yeah, they, they actually make it through the Civil War a lot better than a lot of other towns. Yeah, I know we, we talked about that. Some of those more peripheral aspects of the blockade or of the of the Civil War is those areas of the South that fall relatively early in the war. I mean, like even New Orleans falls mm-hmm. before a lot of those big other major cities. Yeah, it's a very interesting time and place. February 13th, 1862, found the underwriter accompanied by the Lockwood, Shawsheen, and Whitehead moving up the North River on the border of North Carolina and Virginia. Shawsheen Redemption. There they placed obstructions at the mouth of the Albemarle and Chesapeake Canal. So this canal would link the Chesapeake Bay with the Albemarle Sound. Basically, this acted as a cutoff for inland navigation, and it allowed Confederate forces to enter into Norfolk kind of through a back door. (laughs) I've always thought that Albemarle was a really hard word to say. It definitely is. It's kind of like Marlboro, the cigarettes, the Albemarle man. Albemarle, kind of um, the way you have to say it is the way French just sounds to me. Like it's just kind of vowel sounds. Albemarle. March of 1862 found the underwriter assisting in the capture of Newburn, North Carolina. Newburn's going to weigh pretty heavily in the story today. So let's take a few seconds and talk about Newburn. 
and why it's a little different than a lot of the other cities in the area. I might be biased, but I think New Bern is one of the most interesting towns to exist during this time. It might be a little oversimplification, but I think the town of New Bern is probably just a deep water port away from developing into a far larger city than it did. Kind of like Albemarle. New Bern is one of those places that it almost doesn't it doesn't sound right without a North Carolina uh-huh. accent. Absolutely. <laughs> I need to hear that New Bern. Uh-huh. That's uh that part of it, but it it sounds odd uh it, anywhere it else. It does. It's a bit like hearing someone pronounce the L in Milwaukee. Yes. How it sounds strange and definitely foreign. Uh, So one of the unique things here is that it's founded by Swiss immigrants, hence the name. This is pretty much all Scotch-Irish that's settling these areas. Mm -hmm. So there is a little bit of an outlier that there's such a Swiss influence there. Aside from being the birthplace of Pepsi, here's a couple of other interesting things. Uh, Wait, is that where Pepsi was invented? Yeah, that's like where Pepsi started Hmm. back in the day. Uh, So... The town was built on a former Tuscarora village named Shataka. That I'm sure was paid for fairly. There's a reason there's a lake called Chautauqua in New York, because that's where they sent the Tuscarora to go uh, live. Makes sense. Uh, the first printing press in North Carolina was actually established in New Bern. What was it, like 1982? <laughs> it was the first permanent capital of the state. And early Newburn is noticeable for its, or sorry, notable for its Catholic population, which was not particularly common in the southern United States at the time. Actually, one of the most notable examples is William Gaston, a prominent lawyer and politician. And if you're from North Carolina, you've probably heard of. Is that who Gastonia is named after? It is, along with Lake Gaston. So now that I'm done, re- oh, nope, there's actually one more fact. The most important one. The most important one of all. And I want to be clear, this is the book, not the movie. The uh, the book, The Notebook by Nicholas Sparks is set in New Bern. Because you're a book purist on the Sparks. I have no clue why the movie is not set in New Bern, but it is not. Where is the movie set? Somewhere in South Carolina, or as we call it, the Lesser Carolina. So now that I'm done reading from the New Bern Chamber of Commerce website, let's continue our story. Back to the underwriter. During the assault on Newburn, she's credited with eliminating a Confederate battery that was stationed on the Noose River. And she would continue to provide support in both the Pamlico and Albemarle Sounds until departing for Baltimore for repairs on June 1st, 1862. Um, to be clear, the river that I'm talking about, the Noose, which runs through Newburn is spelled N-E-U-S-E. I believe it's a Native American name, actually. It looks like it would be like a French word pronounced like news, <laughs> but it, like the muse. <laughs> More of those vowel sounds. So the underwriter would then leave Baltimore in late July of 1862 and return to where else? But Newburn. There she would continue to operate in both the Pamlico and Albemarle. She would provide reconnaissance information and perform other duties while visiting various port cities along North Carolina's Inner Banks region. So for those of you that aren't from North Carolina or haven't visited, everyone knows the Outer Banks, and it's not just the shitty Netflix show. 
you know, kind of the, the sandy island areas. Then the inner banks would be the stuff on the other side of the sounds. So it's a little more tide water. It's a little more swampy, but there's some really cool places in there too. So some of these duties would include towing the war prize schooner Young Rover from Plymouth, North Carolina to Newburn on the 13th of August, 1862. On the 4th of December, she would visit Plymouth again on an intel gathering operation. And on January 4th, 1863, she would sail up the Chowan River and destroy Confederate supply depots. So she stayed pretty busy. And I think that's one of the things I like about this story is, you know, we've talked about kind of the macro sense of what this blockade looked like. Mm -hmm. But this is what it looks like on the tactical level. It's a lot of just cruising around looking for targets of opportunity, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's really the amazing thing about it is that it's it's so much coastline mm-hmm. to have to cover, especially as we talked about. If you if you want to cover your ass legally, you've got it. You've got to keep all of these potential ports under under blockade. So, yeah, and that's the interesting thing with them doing things like blocking off that canal. You know, you're cutting off one way that you have to patrol now. If you know they can't go that way, yeah. you're limiting the amount of area that you've got to watch. April of 1863 found the underwriter assisting in evacuating troops from their positions while Confederate forces threatened Plymouth, North Carolina. So this is another one of those towns that the Union had captured very early on. And eventually, there's a little bit of a counteroffensive that goes on from the Confederacy. Following this action, she was stationed at the mouth of the Albemarle Sound before returning to Plymouth in May. So ultimately, that attempt to recapture Plymouth was unsuccessful. Uh, She would then operate in the Noose River in June before reporting to the blockade squadron off of Hatteras Inlet on December 16th, 1863, before returning to Newburn again in January of 1864. So a lot of moving parts. I'm assuming that's because you've got ships coming on station, going off station. You've got to, like you said, you have a lot of coastline to cover. You probably have to move your resources around. This is probably really boring if you're one of her crew. A lot of probably doing the same stuff, the same routine. Also, we absolutely support the blockade of the Confederacy. (laughs) We absolutely don't support the blockade of Gaza or the embargo on Cuba, for that matter. (laughs) But absolutely, yes, the Confederacy deserved to be blockaded. Absolutely had that one coming. That brings us to the early morning of February 2nd, 1864. Confederate forces commanded by John Taylor Wood decided it was time to strike back at the federal naval forces in the area. This is part of a broader overall offensive launched on land by Major General George E. Pickett. What's he been up to? Yes, that Pickett. He has a goal of capturing, or sorry, recapturing Newburn. As for Wood, he is noted for his brazen style and bold action in face of the enemy. Wood was actually well known to the Union Navy at this point. He was responsible for the capture of Union ships operating in the Chesapeake Bay in 1862. On October 7th, Wood captured the Union schooner Francis Elmore. Later in the same month, Wood and his crew boarded the vessel Alleghanian, which was anchored near the mouth of the Rappahannock River. The vessel was seized without a fight, and after taking supplies, he burned the vessel. I have to add here, this is... This might be a case of nominative determinism in the wild here. <laughs> you mentioned his brazen style, you know, doing things that other guys won't do. 
got some impossible order you've been given and a guy's like, I'm not doing that. That's insane. And then the next guy's like, John Taylor would. (laughs) So by early 1863, he was made naval aide-de-camp to Jefferson Davis and given the rank of colonel in the cavalry while also maintaining his rank in the Navy. Interesting. Why? I don't know. Probably some like technical reason or something. Or because the Confederacy was light on cash and heavy on being able to give out titles. Although we did talk about the, um, I want to say it was the Santa Cristo de Burgos when it had been in, in Mexico. I believe the captain was replaced by a guy who was captain in the cavalry. And I mean, we saw how that ended up for the Santa Cristo de Burgos. There's actually one other reason he may have gotten that title, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh-huh. So one of Wood's major achievements was beefing up the harbor defenses of Wilmington, North Carolina, and Charleston, South Carolina. So that actually allows them to stay open longer and resist the blockade. He had toured some of those places and was not impressed with what he saw. Quoting from a report he sent to President Davis after initially touring the defenses at Wilmington. Well, now, the absolute necessity of the place, if it is to be held against a naval attack, is heavy guns. With over 100 guns bearing upon the water, there is but one 10-inch, no 9-inch, and but few 8-inch. 24s and 32s form the armament of most of the batteries. I bet you guys didn't think you were going to hear an actual recording of Mr. Wood today, did you? I say, I say. (laughs) So Wood was something of Confederate royalty. The worst kind of royalty. (laughs) Yikes. His his maternal grandfather was former U.S. President Zachary Taylor. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was the nephew of Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Ah, is that why he was made his naval aide-de-camp? Uh, so the way I understand it is it wasn't atypical for guys to hold ranks in two different branches for reasons, mm-hmm. but I'm sure it didn't hurt that he had these connections. However, unlike a lot of Nepo babies, Wood was actually good at what he did. Wood proved valuable early on as he was the man who trained the crew for the CSS Virginia before her clash with the USS Monitor at Hampton Roads. Mm. Quoting from Captain Franklin Buchanan, skipper of the Virginia. Lieutenant Wood handled his pivot gun admirably, and the executive officer, Lieutenant Catesby Jones, testifies to his valuable suggestions during the action. His zeal and industry in drilling the crew contributed materially to our success. A few more fun John Wood facts. Uh, He would actually be captured with Jefferson Davis in Georgia at the conclusion of the Civil War. Is (sighs) Jefferson... I can never remember which stories this is associated with and which ones are apocryphal. I, I think this is apocryphal. There's There were at least stories and cartoons about Jefferson Davis being captured wearing women's clothing so he could disguise himself. If you ask me how he was captured, that's how I would tell you. I do not know if it's actually true, though. I don't think it's true, but it's still what I associate. Not that there's anything wrong with choosing to wear women's clothing, but it would be funny if it was done out of desperation to avoid getting your ass caught. And at the time quite possibly hanged. All I know is that him and John Wood were captured in a swamp, and John Wood had some cash and gave it to one of the guys and said, give me 30 minutes, thank you. Because of that, (laughs) 
he would eventually escape to Cuba before making his way to <laughs> Halifax, Nova Scotia. And he actually was a prominent member of Halifax Society for the rest of his life. I just imagine him giving that cash and like running off into the swamp. <laughs> them finding his mangled, chewed up body a few hours later, and a guy just like smoking a cigarette and just, can't bribe a gator. <laughs> Uh, one final fun fact about Mr. Wood. I don't know why the Union guy would have had that accent. Maybe he was from I Indiana. I don't know. I assume they all had that accent at the time. <laughs> one final fact here about our man, Mr. Wood. His final gift to the world would be his youngest son, who would graduate from the Royal Military College of Canada. However, you know, nothing bad comes from Canada, right? Our friendly neighbors to the north. Um, he'd actually serve in the Boer War. Oh, on the side of the British, where he was killed in action in 1899. As we said in the bonus Lusitania episode, when we talked about the Lusitania riots, not really a, not really a good side in the Boer War. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's just not good. Uh, so back to the action at hand here. Wood commanded a force of around 300 men, including officers, seamen, and marines, in 12 longboats. As they approached Newburn late on the night of February 1st, they were disappointed to only see one gunboat anchored there, the Underwriter. Sort of their own little Pearl Harbor moment here where the aircraft carriers aren't there. They, they had come to arm to take more vessels than one. It reminds me of the episode we did about the Royal Oak mm -hmm. that was torpedoed in the Scapa Flow. Mm-hmm. Not a particularly great prize. I think she was really old at the time, but it was kind of like you did all this work to get into Scapa Flow. And even though there's nothing good, it's like you've got to sink something. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what this is at this point. Like, well, we're taking it. The underwriter was anchored close to shore near the battery at Fort Stevenson. So at this point, they stopped and just kind of observed the situation for a while. Again. Wood is pretty good at what he does. He's not going to go into this half-cocked. Early on February 2nd, Wood's forces made a daring commando raid to capture the Underwriter as part of a broader attempt to retake Newburn and its port facilities. As the Underwriter's crew was not expecting any sort of resistance, they were quickly overtaken, and Wood took control of the vessel. His plan was to get the vessel into action and use her guns to target Newburn and aid in the broader attempt to retake the city. The fighting on board was brief, but it was actually really intense hand-to-hand -hand combat that took place. In the midst of all this, the commanding officer of the Underwriter, Acting Master Jacob Westervelt, was killed, actually. He kind of sounds like a boar himself. <laughs> he kind of does. Uh, one participant, Midshipman Thomas J. Scarf would later write in his History of the Confederate States Navy, Conspicuous among all was the gallantry of the Marines. And I feel like that's something we don't think about very often is like Marine warfare in the Civil War in the sense of deploying troops onto a vessel and capturing it. Also, are they pirates technically at this point if we don't recognize the Confederacy? I guess. Right? But if they're not recognizing the Confederacy, then that calls into question the legality of the blockade. Yeah, that's a defense that I was reading about later on in the story. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. So it quickly became apparent 
that this plan was not going to be practical, as the vessel was idling at the time and did not have steam pressure built up. So pretty much he stole a car that didn't have any gas. Simultaneous to this, the Union shore batteries are quickly becoming aware of (laughs) what's going on. And they begin to open fire on the stationary vessel. They kind of subscribe to that. Um, sorry, your prisoners, but we're just, you know, sorry, your crew got taken prisoner, but we're going to we're going to sink your ship now. Is this the Hannibal directive? <laughs> uh, they also began to take small arms fire due to their proximity to the shore. I didn't really read these notes, but from the beginning, this plan seemed like it wasn't really going to pan out that well. But like it had previously for him, though he had captured <laughs> all those other ships. I think it would have almost been easier if there had been more. Because, you know, if you can capture three or four at once. Yeah. Yeah. If you're deploying all your resources onto one, you kind of hit a bottleneck. Uh, So despite his brash demeanor in battle, Commander Wood was not reckless. And he knew that this position was untenable. At this point, Wood did what any self-respecting naval officer would do. He says, abandon ship and burn it down. (laughs) All right. Uh, they also are going to take all their prisoners with them, too. The way I read the notes, I was thinking, like, is he going to leave the prisoners on this and burn it down? Because, like, <laughs> even even for late stage Civil War, that seems excessive. <laughs> yeah, you don't see that, at least at least in situations where it's it's white soldiers. I mean, obviously, you right. see those sort of atrocities being done by Confederate troops against black Union soldiers and, you know, including their white officers. That would seem very, like, out of pocket for, mm-hmm. for the American Civil War. So, Wood was successful, and the underwriter burned the waterline. In addition to that, the magazine would actually explode, and debris was spread out into a wide area, and the vessel was a total loss. So, in addition to the loss of the underwriter, the Union would suffer around 30 men killed or wounded, and 26 taken prisoner. Wood's men would suffer five killed with 15 wounded and four missing in the exchange. Despite Wood's best effort, the Confederate attempt to retake Newburn was a failure. However, the CSA needed some good press, and Wood was their man. He was actually offered a promotion, which he would decline. However, in a joint session of Confederate Congress, a resolution was passed on February 15, 1864, thanking him and his men for their actions. Do we know why he declined his promotion? Um, I think just because it wasn't successful, like he didn't want to be attached to it any more than he had to be. He didn't want to have to explain, like, how did you become? Yeah, you know, yeah. Kinda, like, oh, well, I failed to capture the ship I was trying to capture. I think the biggest thing is they just wanted to uh, pump up morale a little bit. This participation trophy-ass country. <laughs> So that kind of ends the immediate story there, but let's talk a little bit about the discovery of the underwriter. In 1986, recreational divers would find a large debris field in the Noose River off the Mayola Milk Plant in Newburn, North Carolina. <laughs> you can actually Google this right now. You can type in Mayola Milk, Newburn, North Carolina. It'll pretty much bring you to where you need to be. Holy Mayola Milk Plant! <laughs> It's funny because it's just like what the local milk brand is in North Carolina. I'm so used to seeing the label. It doesn't even sound funny, but it is funny. Sweet Mayola milk plant. So it was quickly determined that this was the remains of the underwriter. Uh, the largest surviving piece of this vessel was actually a charred gun carriage. 
The divers would do the right thing and contact the state underwater archaeologists that work at Fort Fisher, North Carolina. I'd like to note that this is how to not have your items seized by the Michigan Department of Natural Resources and Environment. I still think it's wild that a maritime museum got raided by a Michigan state agency. I think it would have been great if they shot back. (laughs) Like a harpoon gun. Yeah, with with a uh, what's the uh, what's the gun with you shoot it out onto the boat with a Lyle gun, a Lyle gun. Uh, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, go listen to the Miztech episode and learn how the Great Lakes Shipwrecks Museum got raided by the Michigan Department of Natural Resources and Environment, who apparently have police. Would a Lyle gun work like any other smooth bore <laughs> cannon where you can just load it just full put of something in there? Whatever. This might be a good question for um, Kaylee. For I feel Kaylee. like she might know more about Lyle guns than us. Kaylee, if you hear this, get back to us. Have you ever used one in self-defense? <laughs> uh, so plans were made to examine and explore the site with the ultimate goal of salvaging the gun carriage and making it the focal point of the Newburn Academy Museum. The gun carriage was raised on June 26, 1987, at which point it was towed just a little ways down the noose and around Union Point in Newburn to the Trent River where the carriage was lifted from the water and loaded for transport to Fort Fisher for conservation. Is Fort Fisher the fort from the movie Glory? Yeah, actually bringing it back to African-American okay. soldiers. Yeah, that is, uh, that's Fort Fisher. I, I knew the name for some reason, and I, I didn't quite know what it was. But okay, that's why. Months later, the gun carriage was taken back to Newburn, where it sits in the Newburn Academy Museum today. And I think that's really cool. Because how many people probably walk by that thing, maybe read the plaque and don't think anything else about it. But there's just such a cool story with so many interesting characters that went into putting that gun in that place. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's really cool. Like we kind of talked about before we recorded this episode. I love these little stories in Mm -hmm. something like the American Civil War, where there's thousands of stories like this, like nothing that happened in you know, to the underwriter was decisive or definitive within the grand scheme of things in the war. But there's so many stories like this and so many interesting characters to learn about in all this. Yeah. Anytime you go to really any museum, even even the the things that you don't particularly notice or pay attention to, they all have some sort of cool story behind them that got them to where they are. Yeah, absolutely. And then it's so cool when you know that story. I'm far more interested in just looking at it, analyzing it, wanting to know more about it when I see it. So, yeah, it's cool. Like this, I mean, what the cliche history is all around us. (laughs) But um, yeah, I thought this story was interesting as I was looking around. Uh, I always love doing a story in North Carolina, especially one that is so close to the parts of North Carolina that I know really well. Yeah, I think it's just a fun Civil War story. And those are the kind of stories I like doing. I guess just as a as a preview for next week, we are going either to the North Channel between Scotland and Ireland or like the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. I don't know which one. The middle of the Atlantic is more scary, probably, but I'm sure they're both. Oh, you just wait. We'll see <laughs> about that. Just because you can see from one side to the other, it, North Channel is pretty scary, depending on what kind of vessel you're on. 
Yeah, I can. Well, it would probably really be scary if you were on the vessel that you're going to talk about. Yes. Kind of a selection (laughs) bias there. (laughs) All right. Well, with that, I hope everybody has a great week and we look forward to bringing another one next week.